Today I'm going to pick up our reading in verse 9 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Do not repay evil for evil. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you so thankful that you're a God who has actually spoken. And then that your mercy to us, you've made what you've said available to us. You've superintended it so that we have an accurate reflection of what you chose to breathe out from eternity. And therefore we have some place to turn for truth. I also thank you that your Holy Spirit carries out an illumining ministry for us as we study your word. Helping us to understand it. Taking your truth and moving it not just from our intellect but down into the very heart of who we are. Therefore, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, do that work within us this day. Give us alertness of mind as we have a chance to be in your word. We put our time in your hands, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick context. Uh, most of the second chapter of First Peter, and then on through, let's say, verse 8 of the third chapter... We've been examining the issue that God has chosen to put his finger on, which is the issue of how do you live as a sojourner exile in this world. Uh, NIV uses the word alien. Uh, King James Version uses the word pilgrim. How do you live that way? And clearly the implication of all of those passages that we were looking at is that God has called for us to live countercultural lives. He's intending his children, redeemed children, to be a light in the darkness. The, the very contrast of living in line with his purpose instead of in line with the culture is meant to open doors for the fact that there is a different answer than the culture currently pursues. And we looked at eight different areas in which countercultural life is to be demonstrated in the life of the believer. Starting in verse 9 of this third chapter, it's not like it's unrelated to what came before, but the focus has less to do now with the issue of these countercultural contrasts. And he begins to now turn attention to the issue of our walk as disciples. Certainly, the countercultural contrasts are part of our walk as disciples. That's what God wants us to do. But the context and orientation of it has changed a little bit. And God is saying, these are issues now related to personal spiritual growth. And he encounters in these verses four different commands linked to growing as a disciple. And then he sort of capstones it in verse 12 with some promises and a warning to us. Now, last week I'd hoped to cover those verses. Uh, as is so often happens, we didn't quite get there. So we're uh, going to continue to work on it. 
Last week, beginning to look at this, we started to look at these four commands that you encounter in verses 9 through 11. And the first of those commands, you remember, was don't retaliate in the face of wrongs that are done to you. It's inevitable, as people living in the midst of a fallen world, that we're going to be hurt and we're going to be wronged. That's just the nature of life. But we always need to remind ourselves it's not just the nature of life in a fallen world. It is also the nature of life in the church. Because the church, even though with redeemed, it's filled with redeemed under construction. Meaning, at times, they wrong us. And here's, here's even more. Sometimes you wrong them. I mean, that, that's the, it goes both ways. And, and so God says, listen, I don't want you to respond to being wronged. You can't prevent being wronged. That's the world we live in. I don't want you to respond to being wronged in the way the world responds to being wrong. So how does the world respond to being wronged? Basically, retaliation and revenge. I mean, that's, that's the name of the game. It's always been the name of the game. We see it early. Genesis 4, the first family. Uh, wasn't just Cain and Abel episode and the murder of, of Abel, but from that point on, what you see in Genesis 4, Genesis 5, Genesis 6 is the unfolding disaster of retaliation vengeance. So that by the time of the, of the flood, God's diagnosis of the world that's filled with violence, filled with hatred, filled with bloodshed, because that's always where retaliation leads. I mean, ultimately, that's what it's all about. And God says, that's how the world's responding. You've been programmed because you live in the world. A number of years living in that world before you were redeemed. And then even after being redeemed, still being influenced by that world. And therefore, some of how the world responds to things are going to come naturally to us. And that will shift into that automatic programming unless we know we're supposed to do something different. And God says, listen, something has to break the programming. And so what I want you to do is I want you to respond to being wronged by giving grace words to people, which is literally what it means to, to bless, give grace words to people. Uh, you break the cycle of retaliation. That, that's what I want you to do as my child. I want you to bless rather than retaliate. And after saying that, and I, we spent a lot of time looking at that, and I won't review all of that, but he, he then ends that and says, now you do this, and it will bring about or obtain a blessing. We talked about how grammatically it changes from a verb to a noun, you know, to bless, the giving of grace words. But the noun blessing refers to a state of being. And what God is saying, what you will obtain when you do what pleases me, especially in this issue, is you will obtain a feeling of being affirmed and pleasing to God. The people you act with grace words toward may still want to try to kill you. There's not a promise that they'll respond properly. But what God is saying is that you're going to feel right before me. And for the believer, that's where you ultimately want to feel right. Because even if the world feels better towards you, but you don't feel right with God, it unsettles your Christian walk. And so God says, listen, here you're going to obtain a blessing. And we also talked about how, contrary to a lot of false teaching out there, there's nothing in this verse verse 9, 
that is prosperity doctrine oriented. God's not saying, hey, if you deal with this, then you're going to be wealthy and prosperous, and if you're sick, you'll be well. That's, that's not what this obtain a blessing is all about. I've even seen people use this verse in such distorted ways, in good, good intentions to try to loosen the purse strings of people so they'll give more money toward missions or more money. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to manipulate God's word to move on the hearts of people to give. God has his own way of moving in people's hearts to give. Uh, and, and we need to always use his word properly. And it's a manipulation of his word to use it improperly, and especially in that regard. Well, I'll pull myself away from that. The second of the commands that we did look at was to keep our tongues under control. The first one, don't retaliate uh, in the face of wrongs. Keep your tongue under control. And he, he identifies two core sins of the tongue. He says, I don't want to be characteristic of you. Keep your tongue from speaking evil. Kakos. In the, in the Greek, which has the idea of speaking in a way driven by malice toward people. It's purposely a broad word in the Greek. It's not listing of, here's five things that are evil to talk about. It's talking about intention in the way you say. Uh, if you speak to people driven to some degree by malice toward them, whether you used good words or bad words, uh, it would still be kakos. It would still be evil to speak in that way. And God says, don't succumb to that. That's not how I want you to be. I, I don't want you to speak to people that way. And secondly, he says, I want you to keep your, feet, your tongue from deceitful speech. Uh, the Greek word dolos, which earlier we'd encountered in the second chapter, in the description of the Lord Jesus, no deceit or guile, depending on the translation, was found in his mouth, even in the face of being dealt with improperly by people. And it's the same Greek word. And God says, listen, that's what I want from you. When you respond to people, I don't want you responding to them with driven by some sort of inner malice toward them. And even more, I don't want you to speak in a way that's calculated. Because dolos means calculated speech. It comes from a root word meaning to bait or to trap. It means to speak in such a way that you mislead and trap. You twist the truth. My belief, uh, I'm no Greek scholar, but my belief is the closest you can get to that word dolos in our current culture is spin doctor, which is a very common terminology used to describe what people do in spin doctoring messages. Taking something, not totally misrepresenting it, but presenting it in a way that's causing an outcome that maybe wouldn't come if you told the whole truth, so you spin it. That is the Greek word dolos. And God says, I don't want that to be true of my people. I, I don't want you spin doctoring stuff. When you speak, I want it not to come from malice toward people. And I want you to swear off spin doctoring. I don't want you to play that game. Uh, I don't want you to leave a false impression. Well, let's move on. We won't even get into these verses today. The third of the commands, command number three, I want you to let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Turn away from evil and do good. A very practical third command, because God's saying, listen, it's not enough to get your speech under control, although every one of us, if we were honest about it before the Lord, would say, that's enough for me, because I'm sure a long way from getting that done. And, but God says, listen, that, I want you working on that, and all I want you working on, because it's not just your speech here. I want you not only to avoid evil speech, but I want you to move to the other part of the task, which is to change behaviors and change orientations. I want you, therefore, to be turning from something, turning from evil, and I want you doing good. I want You are called to make an effort as a disciple to turn away from evil. 
Eklino in the Greek, turn away, means to, to deviate, to twist from. It's, it's a description of what represents repentance in someone. A change of focus, a change of direction. Because repentance is not merely saying, I'm sorry, or, gosh, I feel bad the way things turned out. Repentance is saying, I'm sorry, and I'm going to forsake what I did. I'm not just sorry it turned out this way. I'm going to do something different now. I'm I'm going to turn from that way of approach and way of response. God calls for his people to actually turn from evil behavior, not merely turn from evil words. But he does want us to turn from evil words. But he wants the behavior shift to occur in our lives as well. And if you stop short of that, there's no way you can be pleasing to the Lord. That's the bottom line of it. And by the way, this whole passage in this section, and it's important as I so often tell you, who's being addressed in one portion of the Word of God? He is not speaking to non-believers here. This is directed to believers. He's talking to redeemed children in these verses. So these are, these are not comments in general for the betterment of mankind. They have to do with discipleship, being the person that God has called us to do. So he says, I want you to turn away from that. I want you to stop being that way. And I want you to choose to do good. To construct it. The word translated do here actually is the root word of the word poem or poet. Uh, And the Greeks used that to describe somebody who actually created something. The Greeks had great respect for poets because poets didn't sort of change and re-modify anything. Poets seemingly were coming up with brand new expressions, brand new ways of addressing things, almost like the artist does too. And, and this is what the root of that word is. And they're saying, listen, I want you to act and create. I, I want you committed to doing good. Be a poet of good, if you want to translate it in a way to grasp kind of the implication of this. The good here is agathos, which means things inherently, intrinsically good. Doing things that are upright and honorable. What he says is, I want you to not only feel sorry for something you've done, I want you to repent of it, change, move. And then I want you to infuse into situations good. I don't want you to just stop by avoiding evil. I want you to infuse good into the situation. Be a poet of good. It doesn't matter whether you can write a rhyme to save your life. It's not that sort of issue he's talking about. But he says, with my grace and enablement in my word, you can infuse something wonderful and good because you're unique, and I will use you uniquely, to change situations. But you have to be willing to do it. You have to be committed to that. And that's partly what discipleship is all about. So, the point of it all, the believer is not to be content with merely being neutral. For many of us, and for much of the emphasis that's out there, it's like, well, as long as you're not doing the bad, God's saying, oh, well, you know, at least that's good. (laughs) That's not how God responds to it. He wants us to be not merely neutral, but actively working to foster good in the midst of the fallen world, to do the good things. Very similar, by the way, the context of that in, in, uh, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, the extended discussion of putting off the old man, being renewed in the spirit of mind, putting on the new man, that God's great intention is not only stopping things, but starting things and being a different person. That's what discipleship is all about. Same message is encountered in Colossians. Uh, It's a very similar idea here. 
God says, be involved in infusing good. Be a transforming influence in the face of what's inescapable, which is tough times, mistreatment. And then he builds on that with this fourth command. And he says, listen, not only that, I want you to seek peace and pursue it, is the way the ESV translates it. Seek after and pursue peace. You see, the ultimate step here in breaking retaliation, which is the core problem that all of these commands are related to, he says the ultimate step in breaking that cycle is to break the cycle of revenge. I mean, that's what you, you got to do something to break the cycle. You've got to do something to break the normal way in which things are being done. You break the cycle of revenge ultimately with a new cycle of peace. That's what you break it with, being a peacemaker. Stop acting like the world and trying to get back at people that have treated you badly. And I won't ask for a show of hands of who's tried to get back at people that treated you badly. Because uh, there may be somebody here today who's that, that person. Actually, I'd probably be better off saying any, any hands here of anybody who hasn't done that. Uh, <laughs> you come up and speak. Because, uh, you know, that would be good for you. Uh, we're called to be like Christ, brothers and sisters, as redeemed children of God. That's what God called us to be. He's called us to be lights of mercy and grace in the midst of a world that is not filled with mercy and grace. He says, that's how I want you to be. That's how I want you to live. So let's look at it a little bit more. What's, what kind of, what's this peace that he's talking about? A Greek word, arene, which means wholeness, harmony. That's what that word means. You know, the, the, the woman's name, Irene, it comes from that Greek word, uh, wholeness, harmony. Finding harmony, finding that peace. That's what, on the best of things, what good men and women in worldly sense all have as aspirations. I mean, you don't have to read very much about the utopian goals of the world and finding a people who are saying, well, there's got to be some way to get to the peace and harmony. There's going to be some way to have this emerge out. Of course, they don't want the way it will only be produced, so they come up with lots of other ways that are destined to failure. But people want it. They intrinsically want it. I want to find that. I want to find it. But peace is very elusive in reality. It doesn't happen very easily. It doesn't happen very often. Therefore, as one of my friends put it, it's more rhetorical than reality, isn't it? And I said, yeah, pretty much that. You know, the first thing that, this first time this really hit me, I became a Christian when I was 18, and as I was carrying out campus ministry uh, at that, several years after that with Campus Crusade for Christ, I was t- talking with somebody at Cornell, and they had, they had spent some time on, on, the, on the overseas as part of the Peace Corps at that time. That dates me, of course, that's a lot of years ago. But at that period of time, uh, at the late 60s, early 70s, that was seen as the epitome of doing something positive to, to make a difference in the world, you know. And we had a chance to sit down. The person was very, op- very open in talking about their discouragement with everything that they tried to do and what people did in response to it. And by the way, from that time on, I never met anybody where I had serious conversation with them. And I spent a lot of years later, as you know, as a graduate faculty member at Penn State, Never had a con- ever had a conversation with anybody that felt other than discouraged, having been honestly, where they'd sit and talk honestly, who was not discouraged with the outcome of all of their good works, because it didn't produce what they thought it would produce. It wasn't that the good works were a bad thing to do, it's just that it didn't produce what they thought it would produce. Why? Because there's a bigger problem than what they were trying to correct. It's a problem only Jesus can change in people. 
Uh, but anyway, th- he was, this person was talking about it, and, it, and so discouraged that it didn't produce the peace it had been after. And I said, well, what was that peace you were after? And he shared those things with me a little bit, and I said, you know, the Bible talks about that peace. So it does? I said, yeah. He uses that Greek word, irene, and hey, let me read you some verses. Jesus said, peace I give you, not like the world gives. Give I to you. And I said, God talks about this peace. In fact, in Romans 5, it says, we can have that peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ opened the door for the gospel in talking with that person. Well, my point in this is, it is elusive. It doesn't come because people say, I want that as an aspiration. Most people ultimately want that underneath. They just can't find it. So the question is, how do we foster it? <laughs> this elusive characteristic called peace. And God says, well, first of all, I want you to seek it. Well, duh. But it is more than duh. The word seek here means to search after something in the sense of getting to the bottom of it. So you, it's a very specific term in the Greek language. Search to get to the bottom of it. It means to explore something, and in the case of what we're talking about, the lack of peace, it says to explore it to the point where you find out what's causing the lack of peace. I mean, what's the causation issue? That's what seeking after peace means. It's not seeking after some vague generality, like, oh, well, peace and love in the world. It's, it's like, well, here's a case where there's conflict. Why is there conflict? And I can't ignore the whys. What people are doing to solve the whys, probably all are wrong. But if I jump over all of those things and don't even try to understand the whys, I'm not getting to where God wants me to be. He says, I want you to understand the whys. Get enough involved that you can see the dynamics of it. What are the driving forces here? And it also has a corrective element to it. Why do you get to the bottom of the matter so you can come up with a game plan, an action plan that actually solves it? If you don't get to the bottom of it, you don't have an action plan that's going to solve it. Uh, similar to some of the management advice that I had opportunities to give, because uh, I was taking it from the Word, but, you know, that's sort of basic things that I would say at General Electric or Sony, meeting with managers and saying, well, you've got to get to the root of the problem, and here's, here's what you have to do. And you can't really develop any kind of action plan of intervention in your, in your units or in your departments unless you really understand what the problems are. And your problem is you don't understand what the problems are. Uh, well, get away from that fact. He says, only then, when we've been seeking it, does Romans 12:18 become possible. If possible, so far it depends on you, live it peaceably with all people. The only way I'm going to know how it depends on me is to get to the root of what the problem is and then find out if it does depend on me or not. You know, is there some way this is intersecting my life uh, or something I've done and don't even realize it? And then he says, secondly, what does it mean that we're to actively pursue peace? Because he uses two words here, not just to be redundant. He says, listen, I want you to seek it. Get to these root causes. And then I want you to pursue it. The oko means to aggressively hunt for, to be proactive. One of the, one of the Greek scholars had written one time about this word, and they said, you know, it's the difference between doing active tracking or sitting in a tree stand in the hunting context. Are you doing active tracking 
Or are you sitting in a tree stand hoping that some of the other work you did is going to mean that that deer, this is the trail, we're going to be here and you got it. This is active tracking. No one discovers peace without active tracking. You've got you to seek after it. Go after it. Get to it. You say, well, I'll just let people drive the deer past this uh, place I've set up. And, no, no, we've got to go after it. And we say, well, Lord, I just don't have time to do that. <laughs> you know, my life, busy life. God says, you don't have time not to do it. Because part of what I've called you to be is peacemaker in this world. <laughs> you don't do it. You don't, have, you don't have time to do it. What use are you to me? And you ought to ask yourself those kind of questions, because God will ask them of you. What use are you to me if you're not prioritizing right? What use are you to me if you're not willing to be who I've called you to be? What use are you to me? You're a redeemed child, but a pretty useless child when all is said and done. James 3.18 says, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. No way to make peace unless you're seeking and pursuing. That's, that's what it's all about. Uh, well, after having said those things, which by themselves are convicting enough, then he says, listen, let's end this little excursion. He says in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Once again, who, who is being addressed here in these verses? The believer. Not the unbeliever. We already know the unbeliever, the face of the Lord is against them. They have sin that's been unresolved, undealt with. They have accountability for that. That's created a barrier between them and the Lord. That's the reality. He's not talking about that. He's not being redundant to other portions of the word. He's talking to the believer. And he's developing a contrast. Do you in your life want to know that God's eyes are on you and his ears are open to you? Or would you rather have God's face set against you? And again, it's the rest of believers, not unbelievers. Unbelievers. And here's the reminder in all of that. God's face can be set against the redeemed believer. He's not talking about eternal punishment here. He's not talking about justification. He's saying here and now, temporal relationship with him. He's saying it's very possible for you to be my child, redeemed. And my face is against you. <laughs> You're living in such a way that our relationship is zero, in a way, right now. Uh, all of us stumble. But when we stumble, God calls for us to confess our sin. He's faithful and just. Forgive us our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can move on. Find his enablement. Forsake it and all. But sometimes, some of us have been guilty of persisting patterns of sin. Where it's not a stumbling only, it's like, well, this has become sort of who I am. Somebody says that to me, I always say, well, that's why Christ died on the cross. Because he doesn't like you the way you are. Oh, what? I told people God likes them right the way they are. No, that's the reason he sent his son. He doesn't like them the way they are. They need to be redeemed. Nobody listens to the gospel because they're told, well, God likes you the way you are. God's abhorred by you the way you are. That's the reason he had to send his son. But he loved you despite how you are. So it, here again for the believer... You're my redeemed child. Does mean I'm happy with you. That's why he gave us a good portion of Hebrews 12 to say, "Hey, I'm your loving father now. I'm not the father of the world. It's not like, the, you know, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of mankind. It's not the picture. But, but you get the right to be child of God if you turn to the gospel. And as a loving heavenly father, I want you to know something. I take my role seriously, which means if you're not being pleasing to me, I'm gonna discipline you in your life." I'm going to take you to the spiritual woodshed. That's what I'm going to do. 
oh, I don't like to think about God that way. People say that to me. And I said, and my response to them is always, how long do you want to live idolatrously? Because the God you're worshipping isn't the God of the Scriptures, and therefore you might as well be worshipping Baal, because that's not the God of the Scriptures. If you think God's okay with that, you don't see God the way he's revealed himself to be. I can be pretty directive at times with people. And uh, so God says, listen, uh, I want, <laughs> I'm going to discipline you in your life. If you're not doing the things I want you to do, I'm going to discipline you. Take you to the woodshed. And he tells us, listen, for the moment, Hebrews 12, 11, for example, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. How do you get trained by it? By listening to it and obeying it. That's how you get trained by it. Some people say, well, I don't want to go that far. I think I'll just live with God's disciplinary hand in my life every day. Well, you have that option. He won't stop taking you to the woodshed, though. I mean, that's just his commitment to you. Hey, you don't get away. You're my redeemed child. And as long as you're in this world, that's what's going to happen. It may be that when you come before me, like at the beam of the judgment seat of Christ, everything you've done is burned away. You come before me with absolutely nothing to show. Your life's been a waste after coming to know Christ, but you're redeemed. Or you could be growing. Uh, that's the God we serve. He says, listen, I'm redeemed. He's a loving father who takes his role seriously. And we can act in ways that will bring on his discipline in our lives. That's why, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, just before speaking about the bema of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, he says, listen, he's talking to believers, he says, we make it our aim to please God. Hey, that's a great aim, by the way. Uh, what's your aim? I want to please the Lord. Later in uh, Ephesians Chapter 5, verse 10, it says, discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Now, why does God say things like that? You know, Because it's absolutely easy for you and easy for me not to please God in our life. You say, well, I'm redeemed. Well, praise God. He's, he, he knows you're his child. He's displeased with you as his child. Now, listen, I've had eight children. Still have eight children, actually. That's the matter. Uh, there have been plenty of times they're my child... Like, they, they haven't been disowned. A few times I thought about that. But at any rate, they're, you know, the, but there have been times when I've been happy. Displeased would be a mild way to describe what I am with their life and how they're choosing to live. Now, if that's true within the context of family, it's true within the relationship with God, too. Don't get into the family of God unless you've been redeemed. And that has everything to do with eternity. But you don't please the Heavenly Father unless you're living as a surrendered disciple. Because that has to do with temporal here and now. And you can be a child and not pleasing to the Lord. So, God's face can be set against you as a believer. And God says, that's a real option for you. Is that how you want me looking at you? With sort of a stern look, shaking my head? Touching my belt, or whatever kind of characteristic you see. <laughs> Is that how you want it? He says, but there's another option here. He gives two wonderful promises. He says, I, I promise, if that's not the case, not that if you're perfect, but if you're dealing with these things, seeking to grow, then I promise to keep my eyes on you. My eyes are on the righteous. 
literally, that idea of keeping his eyes on you isn't like some scrutiny, like he's watching every move you make so he can find something to punish you about. That's not the idea. The, the, the terminology that's used here is a description of the work of a shepherd. Isn't it wonderful that he's the good shepherd? The Lord is our shepherd. And God keeps his eye on us. He says, I'm, I'm going to spend my time. If you get right, if you're doing the things, you're growing in your faith, it'll be like a shepherd guiding you, watching over you. If you're not doing the stuff you're supposed to, if you're not saying to me, I'll be like the shepherd who hits you with the crock of the, of the staff, you know. I mean, how do you want him to be? And he says, listen, I, I've redeemed you. I'm your, I'm your good shepherd. I'm, you can rest in my watchfulness. You can know he's actively leading and protecting in your life. So he says, I can be that way. <laughs> Or I can be the father of Hebrews 12, which choice is yours, pretty much. Uh, how do you want this to be? Uh, well, I don't know if I want you to be my father. That choice isn't open to you if you turn to Christ. That, that's done. That's a done deal. He's there. But his task will be different depending on the way you're choosing to live. He says, listen, I also promise to keep my, eyes, my ears open to the prayers of the righteous. Back in the verse 6 of this chapter, he was talking, in verse 7, he was talking about marriage and the countercultural contrast of Christian marriage, biblical marriage. Remember there, he said, listen, do these things right because your prayers will be hindered if you don't do it right. You know, it's a, it's a big issue. Hindered prayer is a very real possibility for believers. And God says, listen, you can know my ears open to you. Like, we can know we're heard. We can know we're answered. So the question is, do you have the ear of God? You got his eye, whether you want it or not. Uh, do you have his ear? Because that's tied to surrender. It's tied to living to please him. So how are you doing as a disciple? Not retaliating in the face of wrongs that are done to you, that you can't quite live anywhere, that you're not going to face it? Are you keeping your tongues under control? Are you determining to actively turn from evil and actively turn toward good, the positive? Are, are you seeking after and pursuing peace? Of course, the end result of that, for me and for you, I would hope, is I come before the Lord in preparation of these things and study of these things, and I fall on my knees before him and say, Lord, who's sufficient to these things? Who can do that? I'm just very mindful of where I stop. God says, I know. Don't you remember I said, apart from me, you can do nothing? Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's talking to a believer. But, remember that was the John 15 picture. Jesus was communicating with the vine and the branches. But of course, we get to Philippians. He says, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. He says, I don't expect you to be able to do this stuff. But it can be done if you fundamentally are committed to presenting your body as a living sacrifice before me, letting me be the Lord, drawing upon my Holy Spirit's enablement. And if you go to any day thinking you don't need to do that, you're a fool. You're a fool. And I'm a fool if I go to any day and don't think that has to happen. God says, I don't want you to be a fool. See what is ahead of you and realize as early as you can in that day, I'm in big trouble. If I try to approach this day in my power, no matter what my intentions might be, good intentions or otherwise, I'm going to have some first aid on my nose and jaw because I'm going to fall flat on my face. So I can't afford to face this day in my strength. And Lord, you knew that. 
It isn't like you're disappointed in me. What, you came back for strength today? What's the story here? When are you going to get it together? And he says, hey, apart from me, you can do nothing. There'll never be a time, no matter how many years you've been a believer, that you won't have to come back to me every single day to find that enablement because I'm never going to make you strong in yourself. I will only make you strong to the degree that you are living in dependence upon my indwelling Holy Spirit in your life as a redeemed believer. So, what do you do every morning? Maybe when you look in the mirror, you ought to say, Lord, I'm in trouble unless you do something. Help me not to be a fool. Help me to say, I need you to do it. Well, next time, Lord willing, we'll continue in this study of 1 Peter, because the upcoming verses begin to address the question of how his disciples, those redeemed children of God, God is calling for us to both understand the gospel and understand how to defend the gospel in our dealings with people. Uh, Important things to address. But I think we've addressed enough today, don't you? Uh, Go before the Lord and say, oh Lord, help us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for some time together in this day. Time to be in your word. So thankful for the things that you say to us. And Lord, I, you often hear me saying, that's hard, Lord, that's hard. I know. And you know it's hard. But where else do we turn for the words of life? Enable us in this day to see the transforming that has to occur in our thinking and in our actions and attitudes behind your intention in saying these things in the first place in First Peter. And we'll thank you as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.